everyone and welcome to episode 12 of On Air with the Chair and I am your MEC chairman Captain Nick James. Joining me today is our Central Air Safety Chairman Vaughn DeHart. Later in the podcast Vaughn and I will be discussing some safety trends at the airline along with a potential ASAP Focal Crosstalk program. At the end of today's podcast as always we'll, we will be answering a pilot question from the front line. Remember, if you have a question or an idea for a topic to address, please email edvonair at alpa.org. That's edvonair at alpa.org. Now, before we get on to the hot topics of the airline, just want to run through a couple of different items. Number one, open enrollment will be coming up for health benefits between November 1st and November 19th. The company will be mailing out, as they always do at the end of October, a brochure to guide you and give you some insights as to the benefits and differences between uh, the three programs that we have here. Make sure that you reach out to your reps, reach out to Endeavor HR, reach out to our R&I department if you have any questions on either how to enroll or what possible healthcare program best suits your needs. Also, if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to our most recent On Air with the Chair Live, it is on the EDV MEC website. Please take a, a quick listen to that. I'd also like to thank a couple of key people within the MEC for stepping up into various positions during our last MEC meeting. Sam Freeman Cowan will be taking over as the new vice chairman of the airline beginning on December 1st. Uh, our current vice chairman, Dave Zergat, will be likely flowing in the first part of the year uh, in 2022 to Delta Airlines. However, he is going to remain active within the MEC as part of the negotiating committee. And we thank Dave for transitioning back to the NC so that we can have some time to spool up some new candidates. I'd like to also thank uh, Jade Shiwi, uh, who was reelected as the MEC secretary treasurer. Thank you for all of the strong and hard work that you have done, Jade, uh, making sure that we remain a fiscally responsible MEC and that we have a war chest uh, well positioned for our future. Uh, I'd like to thank Eddie Norberg for continuing as the negotiating committee chairman and Adam Spurrier for coming on to the negotiating committee. Thank you to every pilot that has stepped up to serve the MEC and the pilots. Three items of interest that we're going to cover uh, currently at Endeavor is the status of the retention program talks. Number two would be the contractual relief discussions. And number three, the vaccine mandates that we're seeing widespread throughout the industry and what the Endeavor MEC is looking to accomplish. First, let's give the pilot group a brief update on the retention talks. So as you know, two days after arbitrator Javits upheld LOA 125 and solidified the flow agreement for current pilots on the list as of June 3rd, American Airlines, that includes wholly owned subsidiaries, Piedmont, PSA, and Envoy, all released a very, very similar retention program that would provide pilots up to $150,000 of compensation for either retiring from the airline or waiting for their flow date to American. This is in response to some very, very high attrition levels um, at those properties. Very, very shortly after that announcement, I reached out to the company to engage their appetite on a retention program here at Endeavor, as we will obviously have to keep pace inside the industry. Now, while our attrition numbers aren't quite as high as those being experienced by the American properties, they are still of some concern to the company. 
also keeping our competitive advantage in terms of pay and benefits in the JCBA, which has led us to the ability to hire and to attract and to retain is going to be a tool that they need inside their toolbox in order to effectuate future growth and the long-term viability of the airline. As the pilot group knows, and as we did cover extensively in our On Air with the Chair live episode, we did meet with a company in mid-September to start discussing what that package could potentially look like. The company came out and talked more in generalities about retention in general being paired with some contractual relief or possible contractual concessions. So during the September talks, the company came in with a proposal that would include both a retention program, which was somewhat unspecified, and some type of contractual long-term relief. We explained to the company that in light of the American Airlines deal and the industry moving in the direction that it did, it made more sense to bifurcate those two negotiating opportunities and run parallel tracks. In other words, what we were interested in was talking about what a retention program would look like for our pilots here, pair that with a new hire program that would cover all pilots hired after June 3rd and new hire pilots that have uh, yet to come on property. We do that as one LOA, and then we also concurrently work on a longer-term relief LOA that would be paired with some appropriate quits. We also said to the company, we could follow suit uh, on a monetary system that American Airlines did, but do we really think that that is going to be the best retention tool? We believe the best retention tool is a seniority-based system, a seniority number at Delta. Now, obviously, that's not something that the company has the ability to give. That is something that only the Delta MEC has to give. So I have reached out to Jason Ambrosi, the Delta MEC chairman, to gauge the appetite of the Delta MEC and the Delta pilots to see if they want to engage in some type of quid pro quo bargaining at their level that would unlock some value in their pilot working agreement in exchange for seniority numbers for Endeavor pilots. We believe that that is a win-win situation because they're going to be able to execute on some of their strategic objectives inside the PWA while we're going to be able to get a better retention tool down at uh, this airline. Um, However, what exactly a retention program is going to look like, whether it's a seniority-based system, a monetary-based system, some sort of combination thereof, or maybe some other benefits that we haven't explored yet, uh, those talks haven't gone any farther. Uh, The reason being is that the Delta MEC has a process that they need to follow, and they are in the middle of following that process. We don't really know how long that's going to take, but you know, my feeling is that we should have an answer to retention by the end of this year, one way or the other. And by One way or the other, it's an answer that's either going to include the Delta MEC and possible seniority, or it's going to be an answer that is only going to include Endeavor, Delta, and the Delta MEC, because we're going to start experiencing increasing attrition, and we're also going to start having problems attracting new hires as the pay package at the uh, American Holy Owns uh, is extremely competitive at this point. So that's kind of where the retention program uh, lies at the moment. And then certainly once we have more information, we'll share that with you forthwith. The other side of the package is this long-term contractual relief discussion. Um, The company believes that there are several items of interest that they need latitude on inside our JCBA to ensure the long-term viability of the airline. We've covered a lot of these on the live episode, but I'll cover a few here. One of the things that they're seeking is non-seniority list instructor scope relief. Uh, What that essentially means is that inside the training department, 
we have 50% of all events need, need to be conducted by seniority list instructors. Traditionally, seniority list instructors um, provide some better quality and better training than non-seniority list instructors as they are more immersed and familiar with line flying here at, at Endeavor. The company would like to go to 100% non-seniority list instructor scope relief, which would take away some of the highest paying jobs um, in at our carrier, and we are certainly sensitive to that. Paired with the right benefit and the right parameters, uh, 100% might be a little too much, but there might be some latitude to increase it at a, at a level above 50%. We'll just have to see if it is paired with an appropriate quid. Another one that they would like to see is direct contact. Uh, they Right now, they have the ability, um, if we were to allow or unlock it, to be able to contact you directly over your iPad as far as schedule changes are concerned, whether you're a reserve pilot or a, a line holder. Um, and by a reserve pilot, I mean a reserve pilot on a trip. We would not envision uh, the pilot needing to carry their iPad around while on short call or long call reserve. Um, but as you finish your pairing or finish your segment or finish your day, however um, much latitude we would like to provide the company, you may be required as a pilot to check out or check to see if you have any type of schedule changes. Uh, this is something that was negotiated at Frontier, so we would not be the first ones in the industry to do it. But certainly I know that there's going to be some consternation by the pilot group over giving up direct contact, which is why, again, it would have to be paired with some very, very lucrative quids on our side. And the question is, would the company want to pay what is going to be required for us to entertain that. We'll have to see. That's the that's the essence of negotiations. The other thing that they're looking for um, that I think might be of interest to the pilot group is unfettered access to a new hire bonus. So in LOA 91, we gave the company um, the ability to go up to $20,000 per pilot uh, as far as new hires are concerned, and they can control the timing of those payments and um, the either escalation or de-escalation of the money that they put in. Thus far, they've, they haven't gone above $10,000, um, even since we've given that latitude back in 2018. Um, they are asking for unfettered access, which I will just say to the pilot group is a non-starter on our side. We're not interested in a new hire pilot possibly making a $100,000 bonus and making more than a 15 or 20 year pilot at this airline. But is some level of latitude as long as it is paired with an appropriate benefit for our pilots achievable? Yeah, that might very well be achievable. So we'll have to see where it goes. Some items uh, of interest on our side that we've talked about internally and floated with the company would be something like a sick bank payout system. There are a lot of pilots right now that are going to be leaving the airline with hours in their sick bank. And we don't really have a mechanism for those hours to be paid out in your paycheck into your 401k or donated to another pilot at this point. So we would like to create some type of sick bank payout system. Now, there are some pilots out there, um, especially within the senior contingent ranks that may not feel or have voiced their opinions that a sick bank payout isn't lucrative because they've used their benefit. But that is kind of the key point in, in a sick bank payout is we just want to make sure that everybody gets the benefit. If you use it while you are here at the airline, then you've received your benefit, whether that's through sick occurrences or FMLA. But if you leave the airline and you could potentially be leaving the airline with 100, 200, 300, 400 hours, we'd like to see some type of mechanism that would allow you the ability to monetize that in some form or fashion. Another really high priority item of the pilot group is trip duty rigs. Um, this has become obviously far more prevalent in the COVID environment just because of the inefficiency of the schedules. 
Trip duty rigs typically are a very expensive item to try to procure, so we'll have to see where it fits inside that other package, but it is something that we're taking a look at. Um, and then there's obviously a whole list of, of other strategic objectives that you routinely identify to us through your conversations with LECs, negotiators, officers, surveys, so on and so forth. So we uh, we do hope to come to a deal on retention by the end of the year. A long-term relief package might take a little bit longer than that, but we will update the pilots um, once we have more information from the company on, on that front. The last topic that I wanted to cover with you um, before we move on to uh, Vaughn DeHart is this trend within the industry to move towards vaccine mandates. If you've been reading the news, you'll know that United, American, Alaska, JetBlue, Southwest, they have all gone to mandatory vaccinations for current employees, mostly driven by President Biden's executive order requiring private companies of 100 or more employees and federal contractors, which airlines believe they do fall under that net of federal contractor, because we do carry governmental officials, we carry cargo that is for the government, and sometimes we do rescue missions for the government, such as what we saw just about a month ago in Afghanistan, that we do fall under that, that federal mandate uh, that President Biden has put into place. And therefore, airlines are taking a look at these, these mandatory vaccinations. Delta is the last large carrier that has thus far resisted that, even though that December 8th date is looming. Uh, your Endeavor MEC is looking to engage in bargaining with Endeavor on what a vaccine mandate could potentially look like and also an extension to our COVID pay protection letter, which is set to expire at the end of this month. We would like to be able to continue our COVID pay protections, albeit it might be with some modifications to that letter, and then also determine what a vaccine mandate would look like and what options and choices our pilots uh, may be afforded. One thing to note beyond the, the vaccine mandates is that Endeavor has indicated to the MEC that they are not interested in the $200 monthly surcharge that we see at Delta or any surcharge at this point in time. Now, that very well could change in the future, but at least at this point, they're not looking uh, to go down the pathway of the surcharge. Now, while I personally believe the vaccine should be a choice afforded to each of us, the law has been clear that mandates are lawful and being upheld across the country. We unfortunately do not have a mechanism inside the JCBA that would prohibit a vaccine mandate. And even if we did, federal law could override our contract. So I just wanted to make sure that the pilots were clear that we're, we're doing everything that we can um, to represent you and your interests. Um, but a lot of our choices are going to be beyond the scope and our reach within the Endeavor MEC. As always, if you have questions on any of these three items, please reach out to your reps, your officers, or your negotiators, and we'll be happy to provide you some more information. All right, for our next segment, we are going to bring on Central Air Safety Chairman Vaughn DeHart. Vaughn, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Um, glad that you've uh, given me the opportunity to talk about safety and the union's you know role in the uh, safety at Endeavor Air. Absolutely. Well, why don't we just start um, talking about the safety committee in general, and the different subcommittees that exist under the Central Air Safety Committee uh, tab. Because I think a lot of people talk about the safety committee, but there's a lot of arms and branches and tentacles that go off of that. So kind of what are the different subsets of the safety committee? Sure. The Central Air Safety Committee um, is structured with four subcommittees below it. 
Um, so at the top level, the Central Air Safety Committee leadership is myself, your chairman, and then we've got Brandon Garlock. He's our vice chairman. And so we oversee four subcommittees. That's the FOQA subcommittee, the ASAP subcommittee, the fatigue subcommittee, and the accident investigation subcommittee. On top of that, we work closely with other committees within the MEC, specifically pilot assistance and the training and testing committee. And we have local safety committees in each base. So that kind of describes the local structure, but inside that local structure, you, there's also a national structure. So how do you fit in or how does the Endeavor MEC fit into that national structure? And what does that national structure even look like? Sure. So first and foremost, you know, ALPA was formed as a safety organization. Um, you know, its roots are in safety since 1931. The Central Air Safety Chairman at each ALPA property um, is a member of the ALPA Safety Council. Okay. And we meet twice yearly. Um, and the ALPA Safety Council advises the Aviation Safety Chairman, who's a member of the ALPA National Safety Steering slash Oversight Committee. The ALPA National Safety slash Steering Oversight Committee reports the ALPA National National Safety Coordinator, which is normally the Vice President of ALPA. So through this national structure, your individual input, you know, the individual input of the MEC is filtered through to the top of ALPA National, right to the Vice President position and ultimately the President. Um, you can read more about this in the uh, Section 85 of the ALPA Administrative Manual. If you ever have any further questions with regards to that, you also can reach out to your you know, safety leadership here at the Endeavor MEC. All right, Vaughn. So you've kind of told us about the local structure, the global structure, but I guess pilots are going to be interested to understand how do you exactly interface with the company? So we know about the committees, we know about the subcommittees, but what kind of interface do you guys have on a day-to-day -day basis that helps us effectuate our goals and enhance the safety of the airline? Sure. So Nick, you know, each of the subcommittees has their day-to-day -day work and they, they report to me. So I'll, I'll start with, with each subcommittee and break it down. You know, the focus subcommittee has the gatekeepers. They're in the office five days of the week, um, and, you know, every month. And we also meet monthly. There's a FOQA monitoring team meeting, and that's between the gatekeepers and the company mem member of the FOQA monitoring team. And really what the FOQA monitoring team does is they steer the FOQA program. They ensure that the letter of agreement, that's LOA number 43, is being adhered to. You know, they talk about trends that have come up in the FOQA program. And ultimately, that information gets passed along to the safety leadership on the company side and also to myself and my vice chairman at the top level of Central Air Safety Committee, okay? The ASAP subcommittee consists of the ALPA representatives who sit on the ASAP event review committee. Most of us are familiar with how the ASAP program works and its general purpose, but I'll just give a quick overview. The ASAP event review committee meets weekly, generally on Thursdays. They review the events that have been submitted over the past week. Um, and depending on those events, they discuss them. They issue recommendations to the company which are fed into our safety management system. And we'll get into that in a little, a little bit more later. And they advise myself and the safety leadership on the company side. The fatigue subcommittee consists of the fatigue representatives who sit on the fatigue review board. And as a reminder, the fatigue review board is constructed of an ALPA representative and two company representatives, okay? Generally, you only have one ALPA representative and one company representative taking part in the day-to-day -day operations of the fatigue review board. But in the event that they're unable to reach consensus, uh, a second company rep does come in, and that's in the, the fatigue letter of agreement. Um, the fatigue subcommittee, just like the other subcommittees, ultimately reports safety information to the company. They adjudicate 
um, fatigue reports when they come in, whether or not they're going to be deemed operationally induced or non-operationally induced. Um, and they report to, to myself and the safety leadership in the company to identify safety trends as it relates to fatigue. Last but not least, the Accident Investigation Subcommittee consists of a number of subject matter experts in the field of avionics, weather, training, and other areas. And basically, the Accident Investigation Subcommittee exists in the event that we would have a, a major accident where we had to dispatch representatives from the union at Endeavor Air to an accident site. Which hopefully we'll never have to do. Exactly. Um, and in my, you know, in my tenure, we have not had to. Nevertheless, we do keep the Accident Investigation Subcommittee involved in the day-to-day -day operations of safety at Endeavor Air. We brief them on what's going on and what our trends are. That way, they're, you know, they're really fully up to speed in the event that we did have to dispatch them to an accident site. And then last but not least, we have our local safety committees. And basically, they advise the central air safety leadership of what's going on in the bases and the concerns that, are, that individual pilots are bringing to them. All of these subcommittees are tasked in our MEC policy manual with meeting at least a yearly basis with the training and testing committee and the pilot assistance committee for basically a safety roundtable meeting. And that's where we all get together and we talk about what's going on you know, at Endeavor Air, what are the safety trends, and what do we need to bring to the company and what needs to be addressed. So speaking of all of these these subcommittees, Vaughn, how many people are working within the safety department in the Endeavor MEC? So we have roughly 15 to 25 volunteers at any given time. You know, on the gatekeeper side, we've got five Alpha gatekeepers. Generally, we want to have about six. On uh, the ASAP subcommittee, we have two representatives right now. Generally, we want to have three. Accident investigators, roughly between seven to eight. And fatigue representatives, between two to three. Excellent. And how long does it take to spool up a safety committee member? Yeah, so it's a pretty big process. Um, you know, the first step for any new safety volunteer is that they would go to the ALPA National Basic Safety School. Uh, they also call it ALPA 101 at this point. And basically that introduces them to the structure of the air safety organization, you know, at your local level with your MEC and also, you know, at the national level. They talk about the roles and responsibilities for a new safety volunteer. And those are just the basics. That's literally just getting their foot in the door. When it comes to different subcommittees, the training can be quite extensive. For example, in the focus subcommittee, generally it takes up to six months, sometimes more, just to get a, a, a new volunteer, a new gatekeeper signed off for, you know, what we call their first solo, which is basically the first week where they're going to work alone as a gatekeeper in the office. As far as ASAP ERC representatives in the ASAP subcommittee, an ASAP ERC representative can take anywhere between two to four months to get spooled up and, and have their first solo. That's where they would sit as the voting representative at an ASAP ERC meeting. Um, fatigue subcommittee representatives would be about the same, two to four months of training. Um, and they get formal training from the company side where they, you know, we talk about the agreements that we have. And they also get formal training from the, uh, the union side, you know, from myself and my vice chairman. And then last but not least, the accident investigation subcommittee. That's a, you know, a lot of training. Generally, that takes about a year. because There's three training sessions that go into becoming an accident investigator. You have your ALPA 101, which is the basic introduction to the air safety organization. You have your accident investigation one course. 
uh, which is, you know, that the introduction to, you know, how an exit investigation would be conducted by the NTSB, what ALPA's role can be if we're granted party status in that sort of investigation. And then the last, you know, training course is Accident Investigation 2. And that's where we send our investigators up to Grand Forks, North Dakota at the UND campus. And they basically go through a simulated accident investigation. And, and that's a I believe that's a four-day course. So that's spaced out over the course of a year. They offer a class in the spring and in the fall, generally. Um, so it takes a lot to get these volunteers spooled up. Um, you know, we, we really focus on volunteers who are committed um, you know, to our safety goals. And um, you know, we, we set a clear expectation that it's going to take a lot to become a safety volunteer. But yeah, so those, that's a basic overview, Nick, of, of okay. the training. Well, you vault. know, the reason that I ask, Vaughn, is because you know with um, you know the flow program that we have here and kind of the guaranteed attrition, not just to Delta, but the attrition to the other airlines that we're experiencing, not just in the Central Air Safety Committee, but in all committees, rep positions, officer positions, we're going to experience a lot of turnover and we're going to need pilots that are going to be willing to step up into these roles in the not too distant future. And especially with respect to the Central Air Safety Committee, I know that it does take a while for your volunteers to get spooled up in these different positions. And so if you are interested in volunteering in these roles, you know, please fill out the volunteer request form. Um, we are going to be constantly looking for people. Even if we don't contact you right away, um, your application, so to speak, doesn't necessarily go dormant. It just it will sit there. And when we have a need in a position that you are seeking, we're certainly going to look to fill that. So please make sure that you update those every once in a while and your new interest. But yeah, Vaughn and I and the rest of the MEC would love to have uh, more people come in. So Vaughn, let's let's switch gears a little bit. And, you know, we've been talking about the structure of the safety committee, and I know that there's a lot more to talk about as far as the basic structure. But I think what would be beneficial to the pilots is to talk about some safety trends in general that we're seeing and that we kind of want to mitigate and stop if we can. Um, I know that you're going to be doing a video presentation specifically on one incident that occurred here at Endeavor, so we won't necessarily go into that. But in general, what kind of safety trends that are you are seeing that you'd like to advise the pilot group of, and maybe we can reverse course on those? Yeah, Nick, so one of the big trends that we've seen coming from the safety data is the need to have an active pilot monitoring you know, a number of the events that we've encountered, we've, we feel that there's been a gap in the pilot monitoring's participation in the overall operation. And I know that this has been a focus for many years now, but we really want to drive that point home. You know, the pilot monitoring responsibilities are outlined in the CFM section 3-6. But really, if I was going to put, um, you know, the takeaways that the company and the instructors, you know, have gotten from our FOQA data and our ASAP data, is that the pilot monitoring needs to be actively involved in the operation of the aircraft. Pilot monitoring can't take a back seat. They need to be aware of the current state of the aircraft and where it would be trending towards. And that role doesn't diminish you know, when the pilot monitoring is executing checklists or flows. Okay, The pilot monitoring is still responsible for knowing where that aircraft is, what its lateral and vertical flight path is, you know, the airspeed, altitude, really, really basic stuff. And um, we can't let that take a back seat. Um, so the, the safety data is really pointing in that direction. That's a big thing that we're focusing on right now. And in future publications from the MEC, um, you know, we'll get into more details on that. Well, no, Vaughn, I think that that is, that is excellent. And I think that is something that all of us as pilots and instructors, because many of us came from an instructor background, can appreciate that, you know, we've seen students, we've seen fellow pilots that go through the motions of a checklist or of a standard operating procedure, but they don't necessarily 
they aren't necessarily aware of exactly what they're doing. It's almost as if they're doing it because it's part of the job and it satisfies the requirement without actually understanding completely what it is that they're they're checking. So no, situational awareness is key. And I think one of the reasons why you know pilots may not be focused as heavily on safety and situational awareness as, as maybe we could be is we've got a lot of very exciting things happening in the industry. Um, you know, this industry is moving fast. It's recovering from COVID. Obviously, COVID itself gave us a lot of distractions. Um, but right now, you know, I spoke about this at the beginning of the podcast. You know, we've got an upcoming opportunity to get something very lucrative, maybe on the monetary front, maybe on the seniority front. There is, you know, maybe a long term contractual relief package out there. And everybody is excited about, you know, what the future is going to hold. But we have to make sure that that isn't at the expense of the day to day operation. And I think when you get behind that flight deck door, you need to make sure that you leave all of those other distractions behind. We talk about it often. Executing on it is extremely important. So, you know, Vaughn, why don't you just kind of talk to the pilots about what they can do as individuals to contribute to the safety of each flight and therefore the airline and our culture? Uh, Nick, you know, I want to reiterate something you just said. You know, every time you set foot in that flight deck, you and your partner have one primary goal and one primary responsibility to safely move the passengers from point A to point B. You need to put the distractions of the world aside for a moment and focus on the task at hand. Um, so to drive down into more details on that, first and foremost, file ASAP reports when you identify a potential safety hazard. No matter how mundane it may seem, we need to hear about it. And I think we need to stop thinking of ASAP as just a get-out-of-jail-free card when you make a mistake. ASAP can be used to identify so many different safety hazards at the airline. If you're out there taxiing and you see a taxiway marking that's non-standard or a light that's out, I mean, little things like that. You might not associate that with an ASAP report, but when you create that data point by filing an ASAP, you do start the process within SMS to affect safety. And without data, you're not going to make a difference if you just complain to your fellow pilot about that, you know, in the flight deck. You, we need a data point so that management can take that and make changes. The second point I drive home is to engage with the FOCA gatekeepers. Um, we have one of the most active FOCA programs in the industry when it comes with actually talking to our pilots. Uh, you know, I don't want our pilots to think of a FOCA crew contact as a punitive thing. It's not. A FOCA crew contact has really two purposes. It's to help you learn from an event because the gatekeeper has that objective data in front of them, and also to help us as an airline learn from an event. So when we reach out to you, you know, be candid, be honest. Nobody has ever at Endeavor gotten in trouble because of FOCO data. It's non-punitive. Um, and that data has driven so many positive changes when it comes to safety at the airline. You know, last but not least, you know, I always drive this point home. You know, we operate, you know, roughly 700 to 800 flights a day you know, 365 days a year. You do the math on that. That's 250,000 flights a year. A lot happens in 250,000 flights. Um, and you know, your individual share as a pilot of that total number of flights, is a, it's a small fraction. So when you put information into our programs, when you file ASAP reports, okay, when you speak with your FOCA gatekeepers, you are taking your individual experiences and putting that out to the entire pilot group and the entire company, okay? And, and what you're doing by that is you're sharing experiences so that others don't have to experience what you did if it was something, you know, something bad. Um, and so that other people can be more aware of what's happening. 
Well, Vaughn, I think that was an excellent explanation. I guess one final question for you, sir, is let's move on from how the individual can enhance the safety of the operation to how the Central Air Safety Committee effectuates change with the company. Obviously, you have a lot of points of interface with the company, as you've said, from the safety committee in general to all of the, the subcommittees that work from FOQA to ASAP to ERC. But how does your committee in general push forward that positive change and keep the safety trends and safety culture at the airline with the company? All right, Nick. So we can really get into the weeds on how the SMS system works. But to really give a brief overview here, the various subcommittees you know, collect the individual data from the pilots through the ASAP and the FOCA programs, and that gets fed into our SMS. And through those processes in SMS, we affect change, okay? We implement risk controls based off of hazards that we identify. And I'll give a really simple example here. So let's say the ASAP Event Review Committee has started to receive a rash of reports due to hard landings into, I'm just going to come up with an airport, let's say Charlotte. And so over the last six months, uh, they've got a report of six hard landings into Charlotte. And when they look at the last three years, they haven't had any hard landings into Charlotte. Okay, so we're starting to see what, what most people would characterize as a trend. Okay, so what they would do is they would create a recommendation to the company. In that recommendation, they can include what, what we refer to as risk controls. Okay, so for example, let's say there's a runway in Charlotte that's causing these issues with hard landings. They could say that that's a captain-only runway or that we're not allowed to do OE to that runway, or that there should be an addition to this 10-7 pages to raise awareness with regards to that runway, or even something as prohibitive as we can't land at that runway anymore, or that if you wanted to land at that runway, you needed specific training. You know, recommendations can run the gamut. So like I said, it's a very complicated process, but the, the basics of it are FOQA, ASAP data, fatigue data, you know, all of that information gets plugged in the SMS and we affect change with it. You know, on a really basic level, um, there's, there's an important meeting that occurs on a quarterly basis. That's called the Flight Standards Review Board meeting. And ALPA is invited to that meeting. Um, and basically, at the Flight Standards Review Board meeting, we discuss active safety risk management worksheets. Okay, so things that are actively being worked on in our SMS system. And so we have a number of different SRMs that are active at any given time. But at that meeting, we basically talk about what the different departments are doing to address those. OK, we also have a monthly data review. Uh, that's where the FOQA and the ASAP teams sit down and they discuss data with the various departments. Um, we have ASAP event review committee recommendations. The ASAP event review committee by itself can make a recommendation to the company to open an SRM or to you know, effectuate some sort of change, you know, to make a change to the manuals, so on and so forth. The FOQA monitoring team meets on a monthly basis. They can also make these type of recommendations. And then also we just have ad hoc meetings with management. You know, if we identify, you know, a really pressing hazard, you know, I can request a meeting with the director of safety, you know, the director of flight operations, director of training, and we can start working towards solutions. Uh, I also meet on a regular basis with our director of safety. That's Todd Tilbury. We, we meet biweekly, myself and the pilot assistance committee. And we just discuss, hey, what's going on you know, over the last two weeks? And it's a really great venue to um, pass information between each other. You know, we, we express um, you know, concerns that the association might be having and the company expresses things to us and we answer questions. And so that meeting happens on a biweekly basis. 
there's a lot of moving parts in safety. And so, like I said, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but there are people, you know, your volunteers behind the scenes, working hard every day, answering calls on their days off, um, you know, really going above and beyond um, to protect the operation, to protect the safety of the operation, I should say, okay? You know, I'm so grateful to our volunteers. You know, they work really hard. They worked through the pandemic. We had a gatekeeper in the office throughout the pandemic, analyzing FOQA data. Um, you know, the, it, it just never rests, okay? You know, safety is a 24-7 sort of thing. We operate a 24-7 business. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative of our volunteers. I'm also appreciative of that relationship that we have with the company. You know, we have a really great working relationship in the area of safety. You know, if, if I have a concern, I can call the director of safety anytime. And, and we really do get results in that venue. Uh, I think the pilots should be proud of what we've done, you know, what we have in Endeavor Air, um, your individual contributions. We really are um, you know, industry leading, especially when it comes, you know, not just regional airlines, but even compared to mainline. When I have that opportunity to sit at those Alpa National Safety Council meetings, I'm proud of what we do. Uh, we've really, you know, set some great examples in those safety council meetings. All right, Bob. Well, thanks. I think we can hear the passion and enthusiasm that you have for safety, safety of this airline, safety of our pilots, the culture here. I think that that really showed through to the pilots. Nick, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, it means a lot that the MEC is focused on safety. Um, you know, I just want to remind our pilots, we operate in an industry that's, you know, in the middle of an unprecedented safety record. Okay. 12 years without a fatal whole loss accident at a U.S. Part 121 passenger carrier. So let's not be lulled into complacency by that record. Accidents can still happen. We're operating the same planes to the same airports in the same weather as we did 12 years ago. Every flight has the potential to become an accident. And you are the primary difference, whether it's through your reporting or just that individual operation on that individual day. Stay vigilant. We do an incredible job. Keep it up. Thanks, Vaughn. Appreciate it. All right, so in every episode, we like to answer a question from the frontline pilots. Remember, if you have a question that you'd like to answer on the show or a topic for the show, please send it to edvonair at alpa.org. So this question actually comes from James Allen, and James, uh, I think, wrote this uh, question back in July. I apologize for just now getting to it, James, but it says, Dear team, with all of the attrition that's happening has there been any discussion or thoughts on extending the positive space to and from work? Thanks for all your time and all the hard work. James Allen, Atlanta CBJ, 200 first officer. Well, James, thank you for uh, the question. Yes, obviously we would love to extend the positive space to and from work beyond the October 2022 completion date, which it is scheduled for right now. I will be very clear with the pilot group, however, that it is very, very unlikely that we are going to be able to extend the positive space at Endeavor unless it is also extended at Delta. I don't foresee an arena where we're going to be able to have positive space to and from work unless Delta pilots are also afforded positive space to and from work. So that's the bad news. The good news is if the Delta MEC is able to negotiate positive space to and from work, either in some type of additional extension or a permanent program, we will obviously exercise our Me Too clause just as we did before, and we will try to capture that benefit for the pilot. So great question, James. Thank you for submitting it. We will send you a gift from the MEC. 
I'd like to uh, thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in for uh, this episode of On Air with the Chair. We appreciate uh, everything that you do out there. Fly safe, be safe. We'll see you on the line. Take care. 7 5 31 runway 28 Quitland.